And if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, that's page 983 in the church Bibles and 1527 in the large print Bibles. So Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to look uh, again from uh, verse 13 uh, down to the end of the chapter. So we began looking at this, um, this chapter in Matthew, uh, or this section in Matthew chapter 16 last week, uh, and we saw that the disciples, uh, through uh, the mouth of Peter, who spoke on behalf of them all, uh, they declared the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. And we saw that uh, they and all who claim to be Christians uh, make that declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. It was given by the disciples, uh, but we saw in verse 17 that that, de- that declaration that was given uh, by Peter on behalf of the disciples was revealed to them uh, by God himself. So if we're able to, to say Jesus is the Messiah and we believe that, then that truth is revealed to us by our Father in heaven. And then Matthew continues uh, as Jesus explains that, the, that Jesus is the Messiah is, re, is revealed by God through the mouth of the local church, through Christians who make that declaration. So the first uh, thing we saw about Jesus being the Messiah is that he is revealed by God through his church. But that revelation of Jesus being the Messiah goes further as the passage uh, progresses. So for for a definition to start with, what what, what does it mean when we say that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, a Messiah is God's chosen king. He is the one who has come to save his people from their sins. That's what we mean in the Bible when we say Messiah. It's the Savior. It is the chosen one of God who has come to save people from their sins. Well, how does Jesus do that? What kind of Messiah is he going to be? That's what the rest of this section in Matthew chapter 16 uh, speaks of. So let's read that section together. Uh, I'll read again from verse 13, uh, so we can see again that declaration from Peter. And we're going to read down to verse 28. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. 
From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are, not, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. So Peter, uh, is the, as the spokesman for the disciples in chapter 16 and verse uh, uh, 16, uh, is, declares Jesus to be the Messiah. And then Jesus compliments him by calling him uh, Peter and saying that on this rock, I will build my church. It's a great compliment for Peter, isn't it? Uh, uh, quite, uh, it would have been an amazing thing for him to hear. And yet in the very same passage... Peter goes from being one kind of rock to another in verse 18. In the, the first rock where Jesus builds his church, Peter is a rock which can be translated or a, like a small stone. And I think there's a point being made there about the kind of stones Jesus uses in his building. It's not the impressive ones. It is the, the small, perhaps insignificant ones that he uses but in verse 23, Peter is called a stumbling block. And that is another kind of rock. It is not a little stone, but rather it is a big boulder-like thing that would, would either block someone's path or trip someone over. A very different kind of rock, not the kind of rock that Jesus uses to build a building with or to build his church in verse 18, Peter is a rock that Jesus builds his church on. In verse 23, Jesus, uh, Peter is a rock that hinders the work that Jesus comes to do. So what has happened in the verses between verse 18 and verse 23? Well, what has happened is that Jesus has explained to his disciples what kind of Messiah he is going to be. He has explained to them what he will do to save his people from their sins. And Peter has found out that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, but of a kind that is unexpected by people. Unexpected. In verse 21, we read, uh, from that time on, that means that after Jesus has been revealed as Messiah, he continues to speak. He continues to explain to his disciples what is going to take place, what he is going to do as Messiah. And the use of the word here, must, is important. It says that Jesus explained to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. 
and suffer many things and uh, be killed and, and rise again on the third day. These things must happen. Jesus isn't saying, I've got a good idea about what kind of a Messiah I should be. He's not saying, these things might happen, but we'll see. Jesus says, if I'm going to, as Messiah, these things must happen. They must take place in order for me to be the Messiah. This is how people are going to be saved from their sins. There's no other way. These things must take place. And those things we will see as Matthew's gospel progresses. He will go to Jerusalem. He will suffer many things at the hands of the religious leaders. He will be killed. He will rise again. These things must happen. And although these things fit with the Old Testament picture of a suffering servant who would be delivered up to death for the sins of others, like in Isaiah chapter 53, they did not fit with the expectations of the Jewish people, including Jesus' disciples, of what a Messiah would do. Now, it's easy for us, uh, when we have the whole Bible, and we know what has happened, to see, of course, Jesus had to die for our sins. But they didn't have the same benefits that we have as the, as the, at this point. Jesus is going to save his people from their sins and be a victorious king by being handed over to his enemies and crucified. And it's hard perhaps for us, but it's helpful to put ourselves in the disciples' shoes and imagine what that would have been like to hear. I'm going to save you. I'm going to be the Messiah. I'm going to fulfill all the promises that God has made you. And, and, and to do that, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. It's an odd way of gaining victory, isn't it? And it is an odd way. I mean, Christians worship a Messiah who was crucified. It's an odd way of gaining victory. That was what was going through Peter's mind. He has heard Jesus say this, and he's thinking, this doesn't make sense. This isn't right. And that was what was going through his mind, but that's also what came out of his mouth. Look at verse 22. G Peter it says, took him aside. That means uh, Peter took Jesus aside to have a word with him. Jesus, come here a minute. Let me, let me explain, Jesus, a few things to you. He's just declared Jesus to be the Messiah. And now he's pulling Jesus aside and saying, look, I believe you're the Messiah, Jesus, but I'm going to tell you how you should be Messiah. You see? He pulls him aside to do that. And notice the contradiction in what he says. Never, Lord. So he's calling Jesus Lord, but he's telling Jesus never. Never, Lord. And never is a strong word. It's not just, um, like we, sometimes we, we use that word, we say never. But it's not like that. This is, this absolutely will not happen, Jesus. Jesus, you're wrong here. This is not the way. You cannot be the Messiah and then go and die. That's the kind of never Peter was talking about here. What Jesus was saying was so totally unexpected. But it is also the only way for our salvation, as difficult as that way may be. Earlier in Matthew, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by the devil. He was tempted three times. And in these temptations, the devil was trying to divert Jesus away from the cross and take a different and easier route to victory. 
Because the devil knew that if Jesus did these things that must happen, well then we would be able to be saved from our sin and Satan would be defeated. Because Satan, unlike Peter, never missed the bit about the resurrection. And in the temptations, Jesus said to Satan the same words that he uses to Peter here in verse 23, where he said, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Isn't it an an amazing thing that Peter has been called the rock on which he builds the church, and here he is being called Satan and a stumbling block. Jesus' way of salvation is so unexpected, but it must happen. And any other way is a way of the devil. Peter doesn't become Satan here. He's still Peter. But the words coming out of Peter's mouth are the words that Satan would say. If you like, under the influence of. Peter wants to tell Jesus what Jesus should do in order to be Messiah, in order to make things right. And sometimes, don't we have a mind to tell God what God should do? God is the the sovereign king of the whole universe. He is working out all things according to his will. And here, the will of God was the way of suffering. And Peter just thought that God had got this plan completely wrong. And we can do the same. We can have wrong expectations of what God's will is for us. And we can tell him, no, you've got this wrong. And this can be in a couple of different ways. Uh, The first way that we can do this is we can read God's word and tell God what we think his word really means. Now, God's word is is the Bible and it's, it's given to us and it is clear And it's so radically different from what the world teaches and from what our sinful desires so often want that it's easy to water it down and apply it in such a way that we're telling God what it really means. So for example, uh, I've been recently studying um, uh, on the the Ten Commandments and we we do this with with the Ten Commandments all the time. So for example, where God says, do not lie, well, we can tell God, well, Withholding the truth by not speaking at all or, uh, or, or just uh, exaggerating a little bit, that's not lying, God. That's, that's not lying. No, that's not what you mean, is it, really? Or when, we say, when, when God says, do not steal, we can say, well, that means like the big ticket items. It doesn't mean my stationery at work or uh, stuff from the, the Sunday school cupboard at church. That, that's not really stealing, is it, God? Or when we read, do not commit adultery, we can say, well, that just means not having a a sexual relationship with someone else who is married to someone else. And we say, well, it doesn't really apply to how I treat the opposite sex, or it doesn't really apply to homosexual relationships. Surely the Bible means this God, doesn't it? You know, dating unbelievers, that's fine. It doesn't apply to that God. And we tell God what we think the Ten Commandments mean, whereas When we read the the scriptures, we can read what the Ten Commandments mean. God shows us. And when we do this, we have in mind human concerns, not God's ways. But more closely linked to this passage is another way that we tell God uh, how he ought to run the universe. We can think that the way to victory in the Christian life is to avoid any kind of pain or suffering at all. 
And when we suffer, we can tell God, God, you've got this plan totally wrong. But Christians, they suffer and they die just like all people do. They just have the hope of the gospel, but they still suffer and die like everybody else. And when we tell God that that shouldn't be the case, and that uh, Christians should always be happy and life should always be perfect, then we have in mind human concerns and not God. And we don't even have the gospel. The gospel that says that there should be no uh, pain or suffering ever is not the gospel. Because here we're going to see Jesus gives us the gospel. And it's not a gospel of no suffering. It's a a gospel of cross then crown. God's big concern is not our happiness but our holiness. And so when we read God's word, we take God at his word on how to live to be holy. And when we do suffer, we don't minimize it and pretend it doesn't exist or anything like that. But we trust God that he knows what he's doing, even when we don't understand. And when we are concerned with anything else, when we're telling God that he's, what to do, we are a stumbling block, a cause of falling over for others. Jesus is a Messiah that is unexpected by people. And this is true in not only in how he saves, but also in the unexpected way he asks his disciples to live. Now, at some point in the next few months, the likelihood is that we are going to have a general election. Uh, Who knows when that will be, uh, but there's no doubt uh, that soon we will have one. Can you, and and during the, the general election campaign, the leaders of all the political parties are going to tell us all sorts of things uh, and reasons that we should vote for them. They're going to tell us things that they will do that they think will make our lives better. So they will say things like, we will invest more money in the NHS, or we will uh, recruit more police officers, or whatever it is that they, they tell us will make our lives better. Can you imagine, then, a leader of a political party uh, standing at a platform and saying, during, if you vote for us, uh, we're going to put arsenic into the water supply so that everyone in the nation is poisoned. Or can you imagine them standing up and saying something like, uh, we're going to outlaw the cup of tea. So we're gonna, you're never allowed to drink tea ever again. You'd look at them and you'd think, that's crazy. I'm never, you know, they wouldn't get any votes whatsoever. And you would look at them and think they were a total, uh, total nutters. Well, Jesus is, is not elected. He's king of the universe. He's God. But he is calling us to follow him. And the way he does that is a little bit like those, uh, like, just totally unexpected. Look at verse 24. See this as a way of persuading someone to follow, follow him. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, we seriously water down the meaning of taking up the cross. Uh, we've done this sometimes uh, through making the cross uh, a fashion accessory. Now, I'm not saying uh, that it's wrong to wear crosses. It's not wrong at all. Uh, but what I'm saying is we can look at them and think, oh, that's a lovely cross, isn't it, on that necklace? And we forget what the cross was. It was an execution device. 
Or we water it down by this, this phrase, taking up the cross, by using phrases like, we all have our crosses to bear, when we're talking about an ingrowing toenail or something like that. The cross was used to execute criminals in the most degrading, humiliating, and painful way. And Jesus is telling his disciples, if they want to be his disciple, they need to take up this kind of cross. The kind of cross that executed and humiliated criminals. In effect, Jesus is saying, come and die. Because to be a disciple of Jesus means death. That's what he's saying. And we don't need to make this a mere uh, metaphor, because for the disciples, this is exactly what following Jesus meant. Almost all of them were killed because they followed Jesus. Some of them on literal crosses. And for many in our world today, to become a disciple of Jesus means they will die. Literally, physical death, because they follow Jesus. So we don't, need to, we don't want to water this down. This is a serious call to come and die. But this does also apply in how we live our lives. It's not a metaphor only, but it also does show us the kind of life we are to live. Uh, Paul the Apostle picks this up in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice there, I have been crucified with Christ. That's taking up the cross and following him. So this means we die to our old life and no longer live for our selfish human concerns like Peter was talking about. Rather, we live for Jesus, even if it means suffering. And we obey God's word no matter what, because I am dead to everything that is against the word of God. It's not a very, perhaps, uh, persuasive call, you might think, come and die. So if following Jesus means this, why, why should we do it? Isn't this the equivalent of the turkey voting for Christmas to follow Jesus? Not at all. Because after shocking the disciples with the unexpected nature of his discipleship, he then gives them some reasons why they should take up their cross and follow him. And there are three reasons. In verses 25, 26, and 27, the word for is at the beginning of those verses. Now, in the NIV, verse 26 doesn't have for, but in other translations, and in fact, in the original Greek, it's there, the word for. So for means that, there's a re- that this is the reason why. This is the reason why we should follow Jesus. And there's three reasons, and they all link together by one, uh, one truth, that Jesus is a Messiah victorious over all. All three reasons are an incentive of victory in following Jesus. And the first one is verse 25. It says, For, so this is the reason, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me will find it. So the first incentive is that in taking up your cross 
and following Jesus, you are eternally safe. Eternally safe. That's the first incentive. There's a play here on the word life. The same word can be used in the Greek for physical life and the life of the soul. And Jesus' meaning here is this. If you are only concerned about the physical life here and now and live for that alone, you will lose your eternal soul. That is, you will be in hell. But if you're willing to, to lose your physical life now, take up the cross, and you give your life in total allegiance to Jesus, then you will find real life both here and now as we live for our creator, but crucially, we will have eternal life in heaven. We are eternally safe. And so we're faced with a choice, which is either self-preservation at all costs or risky following of Jesus. But the end is very different. It's either eternally lost or eternally safe. That's the first incentive. If you take up your cross and follow Jesus... You may very well lose your physical life now. You may and you will have different, uh, different things you've got to say no to that everyone else is doing. But you are eternally safe. It is worth it eternally. Verse 26 gives us the second incentive. If we put the word for in the beginning, for what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The second incentive is that it is eternally worthwhile. Eternally worthwhile. That is, our life is more valuable, of more worth, than anything this world has to offer. The whole world that Jesus talks of here is all that this life has to offer us. Which, in many cases, we won't have if we follow Jesus. Now, we know that life is more valuable than possessions. Now, someone may kill for money, but no one is willing to die for money because they'll never get to enjoy the money that they've died for, right? Someone may kill someone for a possession, but it is unusual for someone to do so, and, it's all, and every, almost everyone agrees that it is very wrong because people know that life is worth more than money or possessions. Again, though, there is a, a short-term or an eternal perspective that you can have. You can try in this life to have all the world has to offer you. But in doing so, you've exchanged something of far more value even than the whole world, your eternal soul. It's not worth it. Because eternity is eternal, and what we have there will last forever. Whether that be eternal judgment or eternal life. You can try and accumulate everything you can possibly accumulate in this life, but you can't take any of it with you. Uh, famously, a, a Christian uh, called Jim Elliot, was, who was killed for Christ, said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It is eternally worthwhile giving all to Jesus. So we are eternally safe, verse 25. It's eternally worthwhile, verse 26. And in verse 27, we are eternally rewarded. Look at that verse. For 
The Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Now, the disciples have been told uh, that Jesus is going to die. They always, it seems, when he does these announcements, which he does a few times, they always seem to ignore the resurrection. They just get so upset about the death of Jesus that they, they, can't, uh, they, they, they don't get to the resurrection. It's not in their minds. Because the disciples from this Jewish community expected the Messiah to lead them to victory in a different way, not by death, but by killing others, by killing the oppressors and destroying their enemies and, and leading them back to the, the promised land and so forth. And this view of, of a victorious Messiah vanquishing enemies is not entirely wrong. It's just not the whole picture. The ultimate victory comes by the way of the cross. And Jesus here reminds the disciples that while suffering may be unexpected and is by no means easy, their Messiah would come victoriously in the end. This is one of many places in the scriptures where we read that Jesus is returning. And he will return, not as a baby in a manger or a suffering man on a cross, but as a king in the clouds who comes to judge the living and the dead. The Son of Man is going to come. And that is an incentive for us to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Because he judges according to what we've done. He will reward us for taking up our cross. This doesn't mean that we, we, uh, we get to heaven if we've done enough. So uh, God's got some kind of checklist. And if you've reached this level, then you'll enter into heaven. Now we learn all through the Bible that we uh, can never do enough to save ourselves. Jesus has died for our sins. We will be judged for our sins unless Jesus takes the judgment for us. The, the point here is that Christians, those who have taken up their cross and following him, will be rewarded for what we do for Christ. In other words, as we serve him, however hard that may be, even if it leads to our own death, it is never in vain and it is always worthwhile because there will be reward. Now we don't read here uh, and the, the, there isn't the, the time to go into what, what is the reward the point here is that the incentive to take up the cross and follow in Jesus is that when he returns, we will see that no sacrifice we have made will ever be regretted. We're not going to look back from heaven on our Christian lives and think, oh, you know what? I wish I'd have sacrificed for Jesus just a bit less. No one in heaven is going to say, I wish I'd have done less for Jesus, are they? We are rewarded for following him. It's the incentive to take up our cross. And then we come to verse 28. Jesus, in this verse, tells the disciples who are hearing about the incentives to follow him, uh, they are told that some of them are going to get to see the Son of Man coming in his Father's glory. It says, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So he's given them reassurance that it's worth it, but he's going to give them more reassurance. In this verse, he intends to show some of them what it means that the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. 
He gives them an incentive, but he's going to give them a reassurance of this happening. Now, to give them reassurance in the midst of all this, some of them are going to see him in his glory. So what, what does this mean? Because this verse uh, has been uh, discussed lots uh, by Christians over the centuries. Well, it can't mean the final victory that Jesus talks about in verse 27 when he does return, because that still hasn't happened and the disciples are all dead. The answer is found in the very next passage, which we'll look at next time. Some of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, uh, they get a glimpse of what is to come. They get a, a vision of the Son of Man in his glory, in the transfiguration. And the purpose of this vision, right after what Jesus has said here, is to give them reassurance that will stand them in good stead when they take up their crosses in the years to come. When they take up their crosses and they have to face suffering and death, they will be able to look back on what we'll see in chapter 17 and say, Jesus is coming again. We have seen him. But that's for next week or next time. For now... Let us ask God to seal upon our hearts the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. He is revealed by God. He is unexpected by people. He is victorious over all. And as we see this, let us, taking up our crosses, follow him, knowing that our labor for the Lord is not in vain. We're going to respond uh, to these words uh, by singing. Uh, there's two songs uh, I'd like us to sing in response to what Jesus has said. Uh, first of all, we're going to uh, sing Man of Sorrows, uh, thinking about the fact that Jesus did fulfill the words he spoke. He was a man of sorrows. He died for our sins. But in that song, we read about him coming as our glorious king. And then we're going to sing There is a Hope So Sure, thinking about how Christ lives in us, and how we respond by living our lives for his glory. The life that I live is not my own. I live now for, for Jesus, the hope of glory. So let's stand uh, and let's respond as we think about what we're singing in glory to our Lord Jesus.